Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance uh, team, and we're here on this podcast to break down some of the interesting developments relating to benefits compliance. Today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Um, we're going to do it more along the lines of rapid fire topics as we look into 2018 and some of the key issues with benefits compliance and tax reform. We'll dig into some of these issues in more detail on future podcasts, but today we wanted to just looking ahead into 2018 and see what we can expect on some of these topics. Let's start with the elimination of the individual mandate beginning in 2019. Suzanne, what impact will this have? Right. So they did eliminate uh, the individual mandate going into starting in 2019. And the general concern with that is that you will then have fewer people who choose to buy insurance. And if they do so, it's going to likely be those people who don't need insurance. And so you'll be left with only sick people who need insurance in the pools. The rates will go up. Insurers could leave the market. And so there could be somewhat of a collapse of the individual market. Now, that would be the extreme, um, but that's the fear. So for employers, what does this mean? It means that you could have fewer um, enrollees in your health plan. If an individual is not required to enroll in a health plan, you might may find some participants dropping out. On the other hand, if what they fear in the individual market occurs and we see prime premium cost increase, you may find some of your employees who were previously in that market come on to the employer-sponsored plan. So it, it could go either way for employers. What we will be watching for, though, is some state activity. Um, because it's been eliminated, you've seen some states show an interest in imposing their own individual mandate. So right now, Massachusetts is the only state with an individual mandate, but we could see California, Maryland, Washington, D.C. Um, have all contemplated adopting one, and we could watch uh, for other states to follow along. Yes, that could be a very interesting development. Okay, sticking with the individual market, what are we likely to see in terms of market stabilization? Well, stabilization in the individual market is is really what most of health reform in 2017, the discussions were surrounding that. How do we stabilize that individual market, make sure that we have don't have a reduction in the number of insured, make sure premium costs are stable, make sure that those with high cost coverage are covered. Um, so what we have seen right now is there is a House and a Senate bill that are in play. They differ in their approach. Both are aimed at reducing the individual market premiums and again, making sure that we have a reduction in the number of uninsured. In the House bill, it is bipartisan. It's actually called the Bipartisan Market Stabilization and Innovation Act. And it is intended, I believe, to be tacked on to any must-pass legislation to get it through. Um, But it generally provides funding for those ACA cost-sharing reduction subsidies that were halted by the Trump administration back in October 2017. Um, And the fear there is that uh, if those uh, individuals no longer had the cost-sharing reduction subsidies, it was actually going to be a hit on the carriers who were going to have to make up that amount. And we would see carriers pulling out of the market. Um, So there has been a a strong desire to have that stabilized. Also, there is a provision that would give additional flexibility to the states We've spoken about the Section 1332 innovation waivers in the past. We haven't seen a lot of activity on this because there are things called guardrails, which require any proposed waiver. And again, these are waivers that states are providing an application for to have portions of the ACA waived in their state. They're saying, we've got a better way of doing this. We think we can still help stabilize premiums in our state and help make sure that we have a low uninsured 
population, but we want to do it a different way than what the ACA prescribes. So they're submitting to the federal government to say, don't apply certain provisions of the ACA in our state. Uh, We've got a better way of doing this. But the federal government says, okay, but you have to show us that there's certain parameters you still have to meet. Um, Those parameters have been so steep that it really hasn't allowed much flexibility in state design. So what this provision does is to provide greater flexibility for states in how they're submitting their waiver uh, applications. So um, also, finally, and this is the part that's really the most uh, um, at issue, is setting up some type of reinsurance program to help pay for those high-cost patients. And, and the way that that reinsurance money is used could, be, could come in a number of different ways. Um, it could be setting up a high-cost uh, pool. It could be uh, some, some transparent reinsurance payments that are happening on the back end. It could, it could be set up in a number of different ways. Right now, the House bill is providing $10 billion in reinsurance funding, whereas the Senate bill is only providing $2.25 billion. Now, the Senate bill is the one that we've talked about for a while that's sponsored by uh, Senators Collins and Nelson, and it's been out there for a while, and it really, again, expedites that waiver process, creates a state reinsurance program, but the bottom line is they are not providing near as much funding as the House bill. And what experts are saying is that they don't think the Senate bill provides enough money to stabilize the marketplace. So here's the rub. If uh, you're going to find some of the GOP really pushing back against any funding that's to prop up the ACA, you're going to have resistance. On the other side, you're going to see the Democrats resisting any effort to provide flexibility to the states um, to waive any portion of the ACA. So right now, Skypost Labs, which is an an outfit that tries to um, place a chance of passing percentage, Mm -hmm. kind of an over-under. Creating some odds for what's going to happen here. For the chance of a bill passing. Right now, for the House bill, they give it a 5% chance of passing. So it uh, this may be too much of a partisan issue to get anything through, but we'll watch for that. I will say something that interesting that's developed in one of the states, Iowa, has come out and said that they are going to allow uh, non-ACA plans in their state outside of the in- individual uh, healthcare marketplace. So outside of the exchange, they're going to allow carriers to offer plans that do not meet the ACA guidelines. And right now they're saying there will obviously be lawsuits around this. How can a state just right. forego implementation of the ACA in their state? But we'll watch for that. This is, this is an approach that they're going to take, and we'll see what happens in that state. It's something really interesting to watch. Yeah, you described some interesting tensions between the House and the Senate, between Republicans and Democrats. So it looks like we're in for a little bit more drama in 2018 as uh, we talk about uh, individual market stabilization. Let's move on to the employer mandate. This is something that's a little more closely aligned with our audience. What do you see happening there in 2018? Well, I think first it's important to remind employers that the repeal of the individual mandate does not affect your requirements to provide health insurance under the ACA. Um, employers argue that you know now it doesn't really serve a purpose because the part of the purpose was to support that individual mandate. There's other portions of why they'll say that it's it's still relevant, but nonetheless, it doesn't appear that there's going to be any action to repeal the the employer mandate for one because of the revenue loss that would be uh, that would go alongside either any type of repeal, and they would have to make up if they were to repeal it. So, in fact, what we're seeing now really are assessments. In 2017, we began to see the IRS assessing employers for 2015 failures um, to comply with the individual with the employer mandate. Yeah, that's right. So we have talked about this on past podcasts. We're talking to clients uh, 
couple times a week that are receiving these letters, helping them walk through how to respond to the IRS, defend their positions on whether they offer coverage to their full-time employees in 2015. Uh, but one issue has come up along with those discussions with clients that we're seeing is how does the reporting come into play here? What do you anticipate uh, that happening with, we're talking about forms 1094 and 1095C, um, what, can you, what can we expect to see there? This is one issue we may see some relief. This has certainly been a burden on employers, an administrative drain, and, and we expect Congress to give some consideration to bipartisan legislation that would streamline the reporting duty, so not completely eliminate them, but certainly um, be less burdensome. It's called the Common Sense Reporting Act. Um, it's been introduced in the House and the Senate. It currently sits in the House Subcommittee on Health and, and in the Senate uh, Committee on Finance. So we will certainly be tracking this one closely. It seems to have bipartisan support. Um, and if anything that we can do to reduce the administrative drain on employers, we will uh, certainly push to do so. Right. That would be welcome news, I would think, for most employers, some simpler way of doing these forms. But it's important to remember that for now, the reporting is in place. Uh, don't ignore it. And definitely, um, there'll be reasons to continue to track your offers of coverage to full-time employees. Um, moving on to the Cadillac tax. This is a very popular item to talk about. Many employers have been concerned about its impact and have been working through alternative benefit arrangements to avoid the tax. What's going on with the Cadillac tax? So it was it was delayed for another two years, so to 2022. Um, so that was good news because, like you said, we did start to see employers begin to uh, do some studies about their current benefit plan, what changes would have to be made. However, we will not fully rest until it's fully repealed. Uh, specifically... Um, our primary lobbying groups, the CIAB, the NAHU, um, they are going to continue to work towards a repeal of the tax. And there does seem to be bipartisan support for the repeal, but there's no agreement on how to replace that lost revenue from a full repeal. So that's where the rub is. Is any? Uh, it all gets down to the money. Bottom line is money. Show us the money. Show us the money. So, it, But until it's repealed, I think employers just have to continue to monitor their plan designs with the Cadillac tax in mind. Um, coming up in the future. And so certainly as we get closer to 2022, actually more like 2020, we will then again reassess um, some of the plan designs for our clients and, and with the tax in mind and, and hope by that we've got some relief uh, fully. Right. Great. So last year about this time, we were on these podcasts talking about a lot of the repeal and replace legislation that the uh, Republicans were putting out there. And almost all of those proposals seem to have something about HSAs, um, enhancing them, changing some of the rules. Will we see, obviously none of those went through last year, so we haven't seen any changes yet to the HSAs. Uh, will we see any, any enhancements of this important funding vehicle? Well, there is a standalone uh, bill right now that the Republicans do seem to have a continued interest in expanding HSAs. And the, the bill currently is the Health Savings Act of 2017. And it would impact HSAs in four ways. First, it would allow an additional tax deduction for amounts paid to the HSA of a taxpayer's child or grandchild. It would allow, secondly, a rollover of HSA funds to the child, parent, or grandparent of an account holder. Uh, third, it would increase the maximum HSA contribution limit, which is the most common thing we've seen, uh, to match the amount of the deductible and out-of-pocket expenses under HDHP. 
And then finally, and this is a, a big one for some, it would expand the definition of HSA compatible plans to include some of those plans that, that could be bought through the exchange. Um, so that certainly unlocks some interest in the HSAs. If we could expand them generally for the amount of contribution limits would certainly be welcome news. And I think you'd find more and more employers wanting to adopt HSAs if not doing so currently. But I think we will see some type of movement on the HSA bill. Yeah, that would be great. That's a, That would be a fun one to watch. I think everybody would be excited about being able to have a little bit more flexibility, maybe some higher contribution limits there. So that would be some welcome news, I think, on the HSA front for both employers and employees um, in being able to better utilize uh, HSAs in the healthcare world. Let's turn our attention to association health plans. This is becoming a hot topic. Uh, talk a little bit about AHPs as we refer to them. Yes, in January, this really is is an interesting topic and one that we'll have to develop throughout the year. I don't think there's going to be a quick fix, but in January, the DOL released proposed rules that would expand the ability of AHPs to form and to operate across state lines. So it would really enable more small employers to form and join an AHP. Typically, these aren't going to be as much of an interest for the larger employers. The idea is you're going to allow small employers to band together to hopefully get better rates mm-hmm. um, or better funding. And so um, either, uh, but the real interest is is whether you do it on a self-insured basis versus a fully insured basis. What the proposed rule did not do is preempt state law. And so you have most states, many states still have oversight over MEWAS. And uh, in some states, in fact, they're not even allowing currently any new self-insured MEWA plans to to come into existence. And these association health plans are considered MEWAs, correct? They are considered MEWAs. Again, you have multiple employer welfare arrangements, so you have multiple employers coming together to form a single plan, a single ERISA plan. Right. So what we're going to watch for is uh, there was a comment, just a comment made in the proposed rules that the federal government does have the ability to preempt state laws as it pertains to self-insured plans, but there was no additional commentary on it. There were no questions asked about it. So in the normal rulemaking process, you put you propose ideas and then you receive comments and then you come up with final regulations. So there's thought that if they want to make any changes along those lines, they would really have to um, possibly uh, provide some additional language in a proposed rule to allow that commentary back and forth to have a, a true rulemaking process. They're just It was just touched on in comment in there, but it really wasn't fully developed in, in terms in the proposed rule. So we'll watch for that. I think that that would be the real deal changer in these and, and really be able to move the mark if they did eliminate some of the, the state restrictions on forming these MIWAs. Otherwise, you're really subject still to the state laws, and, and that's going to be um, somewhat restrictive in, in, in not al- allowing some of these um, employers to uh, form together in an AHP. Now, we haven't really gone into any how it's relaxed, those rules, but just to hit very briefly, um, under ERISA currently, the idea is that they're, uh, the commonality of interest, employers must have a commonality of interest in order to have a single plan. Um, they've relaxed that definition. And so now you can have employers formed together that are just in a geographic region, for example, within a state. They don't have to have any similar interest in industry um, or economic benefit, but they are just forming because they, they live in the same state or there was, they are operating in the same state. Um, so it could be, and they could form not for the purpose of anything other than just to buy insurance. And that has been another stickler in the past. So those are just some two examples of how the uh, formation of AHPs would be easier if this mm-hmm. was allowed to go through and if they were allowed to preempt state laws. 
Yeah, and there was even some discussion of relaxing the rules among states where there are major metropolitan areas, such as New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Virginia. Even though they're across state lines, these employers, they still could form these association health plans because they're in a greater uh, metropolitan area. That's correct. And that's where the crossing of state lines comes into play, but also makes it difficult from a state regulation perspective if you have varying state rules. So lots to watch for there. Um, comments on those proposed rules due in March. We would anticipate a, a final rule sometime in the early to mid-summer. Would that be a Possibly. good time frame? Possibly. Right. So lots to work out there. Um, another hot topic last year at least, and we noticed some bills coming up on this, single payer. Can you touch on single payer bills that might be out there? Well, there are at least four bills in the House, three in the Senate. Some of those are, you know, are similar bills all sponsored by Democrats, as you would imagine, that all relate to some form of a single-payer system. The bill that has received the most press was the Medicare for All Act of 2017 that was sponsored by Bernie Sanders and established a national health care program. Now, none of these bills has a chance of getting through the House or the Senate as long as the Republicans are in charge, or frankly, as long as there's a Trump administration. So uh, I don't anticipate this uh, anything to go forward on a single-payer system mm-hmm. um, until there's a change in administration. And, it, and uh, if that change is uh, obviously change in parties as well. Um, we've also seen activity in the states. None have been successful. Either they haven't made it through the legislature or in the case of Vermont, they made it through the legislature, but it was ultimately halted because they didn't have sufficient funding. So we have not seen success with single-payer systems in the state, not at the federal, uh, at the federal level, but I don't think that this topic's going away. It will always be there in the background. There will always be a segment of the population that thinks that's the best way to go. So if we were to see in the future a a Democrat administration, Democratic House and Senate, you could easily see a single-payer bill go through. Right. Something to watch as well. Can you fill us in on the new tax relief that relates to FMLA and employers that provide paid FMLA? Right. This was kind of nice news that came as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, But certain employers that provide paid leave under FMLA may be eligible to receive just this general business tax credit for uh, tax years beginning in 2018 and 2019. And the the rub here is that while the FMLA provides job-protected leave, it doesn't require that leave to be paid. And so this new law is to incentivize employers to provide wage replacement and so the idea is that you will employers will get a general business tax credit equal to at least 12.5%, and it goes up from there, of the amount of wages that are paid to, end quote, qualifying employees, end quote, during a period in which they're, they are um, on FMLA leave. So there are some stipulations. We'll be watching for more clarification on this. The rate of payment must be at least 50% of the wages normally paid to the employee, there's some definitions related to qualifying employee, but just know that this new tax credit is really a bonus for those employer employers that were already offering FMLA paid leave, and it's an incentive for other employers to make that leave paid. Right. That one will be an interesting to watch. It's a new tax code section that's been added, so we'll anticipate the IRS coming out with some additional rules and clarifications. Um, so hang tight on that one. Anything else we should know, Suzanne? Well, you know, there's. I, I think what we have to look for going forward is there doesn't seem to be an appetite uh, with the Republicans to do a, a wholesale repeal of the ACA as, as they failed on in 2017. Mm-hmm. But we are seeing piecemeal legislation. So one other piece 
Um, I'll, uh, one other bill that's out there that could be of interest to employers is the 40 Hours is Full-Time Act, and that's sponsored by Senator Collins. And again, it just defines full-time employee as 40 hours instead of the current 30 hours for purposes of the ACA. So we'll, we will watch for the Republicans to piecemeal, pick at various portions of the ACA that they want to t- change on standalone bills. Um, but those are, are the primary topics for right now going into 2018, and we'll be on top of all of them. Yes. Thanks for those quick updates on everything. Really exciting stuff to hear, and we will definitely stay on top of it and report it either on our podcasts or through our newsletters um, to capture what happens in 2018. Should be fun. Should be fun ride. All right. Well, thanks, Suzanne. Uh, as we like to say, that's a wrap for today. That's a wrap. <laughs>